Good morning. It's a joy to be with you. We're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians, and we've been talking about a particular topic for a while at the moment. And to set the background very quickly, I'm not going to recap everything, but Paul is writing to the Corinthian church to respond to concerns that they have and concerns that others have about them, about things that are not being practiced clearly or correctly in the church. And Paul is writing to resolve some of these issues. And the issue we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks revolves around the fact that people were in a position of having to choose about where they bought their meat and what kind of meat they ate. It was common practice in the city for a lot of the meat that was available to people for their meals to come from the temples where they'd been offered to idols. When people brought their offering as idols to the idols, some was burnt before the idol, some was uh, given to the priests very often or to the people themselves, and some was marketed to the, the general public and often eaten in restaurants in the churches or the temples themselves. And people were concerned that some people were eating meat that had been offered to idols and some weren't, and a debate had arisen. And there were two sides, one side saying, this is wrong to eat this because it's been offered to an idol. Another side saying, idols have no power over us whatsoever because we are in God and therefore we can eat what we like, don't be silly. And Paul is addressing the fact how the people who have more experience in the church treat the people who have less experience and knowledge and the example that we need to set. Ed spoke last week specifically about idolatry and what it means. And he had a little idol for us to see that he brought here that fell over. I thought it was quite interesting. Couldn't stand in the presence of God. Um, but the conclusion practically for the Corinthian church was this. The meat from idols can't harm you because idols have no power. But the message was to those who understood that because they were experienced in the word, if you eating the meat from the idols is going to cause someone who hasn't got that conviction to stumble and cause them to fall and to be harmed by eating that meat, then don't do it for the sake of those people. And what I'm looking at today is that general concept of how we operate within our conscience as Christians, our Christian conscience, how we respond as those who possibly have more confidence in what we believe and those who are less confident and how we interact with one another. And that was the message that Paul was giving, not just for that specific thing, but to the church in general. How do we respond to challenges? How do we decide what's right and wrong? How do we respond when there is a difference of opinion? And excuse me, scripture we're looking at is 1 Corinthians 8 verses 9 to 13. I'm reading from the NIV and it says, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights or liberty or authority, some translations say, does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? And so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. They are sidelined. They are made unable to continue with their testimony, they are, they are damaged by what you do. And it says, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to sin and to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fail. And the focus I'm going to bring this morning is on what is considered to be weak conscience in this piece of scripture and therefore what is strong conscience. And what does that mean if you look at yourself and you say, I fall into one of those two categories or I'm somewhere in transitioning between those categories, 
I'll ask you at the end what your takeaway would be from this particular situation. Now, when we talk of someone in the Scripture, when the Scripture mentions someone of weak conscience, you might think this is somebody who is licentious in the way that they live and they're falling for all sorts of sin, but it means exactly the opposite in this context. These are people, and Michael Eaton describes this, and I agree with him, this person has not fully grasped freedom in Christ. He tends to make regulations for himself over minor matters and then feels guilty when he transgresses quite minor matters. This person is weak in their confidence in their understanding of what God has said to them. Because they are not sure, because they don't have the knowledge of Scripture, or because they haven't got the relationship with God that they will build over the years, because they're not sure, they begin to eliminate any possible area where they think they might sin by setting up multitudes of rules. These are often people who are trapped within a, a form of legalism that, that has a powerful impact on their lives and it has a powerful negative impact on their lives. And so I thought we could look first of all at some of the immediate dangers of being someone of weak conscience, someone who's not sure what God wants. You don't have the confidence in your relationship with Him and His Holy Spirit or in His Word to know this is the nature of my God and this is what pleases Him. So you begin to make lots of rules in case you overstep the mark. And the first thing that we do is we neutralize ourselves in terms of being effective in working in the kingdom of God. Some of the, 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 the monks and, and, and priests of old would build themselves into a cell and eliminate the effect of the world on their lives and they would withdraw into the cell to pray and to fast and to be holy but you don't meet many people if you're a hermit. And you don't change many people's lives if you're a hermit and if you're in a cell being holy. You're protecting yourself from being tempted, but you're taking yourself off the playing field. And just a word of personal testimony. I've shared before from this pulpit that I grew up in a very conservative church environment. Very conservative. And I, I joke that if you smiled on Sunday morning, they believed you must have sinned on Sunday evening, on Saturday evening, so you were in trouble. But the truth is that in a practical way, there were many rules placed on my life when I was in primary school in the first parts of high school. No drinking, no smoking, that's fine, okay. No movies, no going to the cinema, no dancing. Dancing was a big one. I'm not sure why dancing was this big one, but dancing was a terrible sin. I think the concern was that it would be something that would inspire us to be more deceivious or erotic. But dancing in the 60s and 70s, which I wasn't able to participate with, if you've, if you've watched Top of the Pops and things like that, it was generally two people standing in front of one another doing this. <laughs> Maybe the more active would be doing that. But, but this was sinful. Now, I'm joking about it, but it meant that in my school time, I couldn't go to the parties, I couldn't go to the events, I couldn't go to the dances. I couldn't do much socially with the group that I was with. Here's the thing, if me not dancing and not going to the music concerts and things was going to have an effective testimony, then surely somewhere along the way somebody would have come to me and said, I want to be like you. <laughs> Nobody in my class wanted to be like me. Nobody wanted to be like me. I wasn't Johnny No friends. I had friends. They were like me. <laughs> we had our gatherings where we didn't dance. 
and we didn't do the sinful things that were placed on us as rules. Now, I'm, I'm being slightly frivolous about it, but quite seriously, I only began to have a testimony that was effective and began to touch people's lives when I had confidence in my understanding of God enough to enjoy my relationship with God. The person with the weak conscience that Paul talks about here is going to heaven. If they're born again and they've got Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they're going to heaven. When they get there, someone's going to say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in by the way you were allowed to enjoy it. You were allowed to be joyful. Being a child of God was something that you were allowed to exercise in a way that drew people to the kingdom of God. But we, we, we retreated. I, I say this of myself, that because I wasn't aware of the freedom that I'd inherited, I didn't walk in that freedom. I just redecorated my cell. That's one thing that happens when we have what I call, what Michael Eaton and Paul calls a weak conscience. The other thing is we begin to apply the rules of our insecurity in our judgment of other people. Jesus saw this in the Pharisees. The Pharisees are projected or projected themselves to the people of Israel as these very holy, strong teachers of the law. But in fact, they themselves were bound by dozens of minor rules that they'd added. And Clark, the Bible commentator, says this, and this is quite forceful. He says, many persons cover a spirit of envy and uncharitableness with the name, in the name of godly zeal and tender concern for the salvation of others. They find fault with all. Their spirit is a spirit of universal censoriousness. None can please them, and everyone suffers by them. These destroy more souls by tithing mint and cumin than others do by neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Such persons have what is termed, and very properly to, a sour godliness. Being the sheriff of the church is not an attractive thing to be. You did that, you did that, he did that. When you have a conversation, they will reel off all the things that people are not doing right. And they suck the joy out of your living. And they suck the joy out of your relationship with God. And they begin to apply it. Also, if you remember how the Pharisees work, they will use the letter of the law to justify what they actually want to do. Now, I've been a teacher for 40-something years, and I've met a lot of lovable rogues in that time. Youngsters who will do something that's wrong, but when you, when you point it out to them, they'll say, I'm guilty, sorry, I'll take the punch. Then you get the lawyers, the classroom lawyers. The example, Humphrey, I told you not to play with the Rubik's Cube. It's not my cube, sir. It's my brother's. They don't take the meaning of what you've said. They take the letter and they use it to circumvent the bigger issues. The Pharisees would tithe on the herbs in their gardens, the mint and cumin, but their hearts were far away from God. They had replaced the relationship with God with a set of rules that made them feel safe, but which weren't in fact honoring God. And when they then tried to apply that on the lives of other people, it caused even more damage. I had a conversation a couple of days ago with a lawyer. We were having coffee together. He's a retired tax expert, a research lawyer, huge brain. And he was saying, we were talking about this sort of issue, and he said that if you think about how laws are brought into practice, somebody 
somewhere thinks we need to change the law and bring a particular point into the law of the country. It goes into select committees in Parliament. It goes through a process. It eventually lands up in the House of Commons. It's worded in certain ways. It's sent backwards and forwards. And eventually, it is placed into the law of the country. And quite often in the process, the reason why the law was placed in the first place begins to get lost. And people begin to then interpret the law as they see it rather than knowing what the actual purpose was of that law when it started. Much gets lost in translation. Some people amongst us and some of us, and I'll include myself because all of us go through this phase, are in a place where we aren't sure why God wants something done. We're too scared to transgress, so we make a whole bunch of rules to try and protect ourselves. And you have people living their Christian life in fear, too afraid to step out and do anything. When I was a young man going into my first position of leadership, I had a, a wonderful evangelist called Elijah Maswangani stay in my home for a couple of nights. And we sat talking one evening and he said to me, all of a sudden, young man, do you allow the people in your staff to make mistakes? And I said, well, I, I guess I have to because I make mistakes. He says, if you don't give people the freedom to make mistakes, all you will get is safe mediocrity. Now, I'm not saying that God is saying make mistakes, they're good. But we know that God's grace is there when we do if we put ourselves in a place where we are so surrounded and hemmed in by rules that we have made because we don't understand the purpose of the law, we become neutralized. We don't go anywhere. We don't change anything. We don't do anything. The servant who took the one talent and buried it in the, in the ground, he'd been given something precious that he could do something with and he stuck it in the ground and said, I'm so afraid that the master will be cross with me if I lose some money that I will do nothing. And his master said to him, that's not what I'm looking for. If you are what Paul here is talking about, someone who prides yourself, and I, I'm not saying anything about anybody, I'm saying look to, let's look to ourselves in how we can keep the rules. We need to start thinking carefully about who's the person that makes the rules and why is he making them and what's his plan and what's his purpose. Because something else happens, and this is one of the things that Paul is warning the people about this time, is it's possible to sin against your conscience. What do I mean? In the case of the idols and being eating meat from idols, we've agreed, I think, over the weeks we've been talking about it, that actually idols have no power whatsoever. Therefore, the meat that's been offered to idol is meat. There is no demonic presence in that meat. It is not going to change in your stomach into a demon and possess you. It's meat. But Paul talks about the fact that if somebody who doesn't understand that it's okay to eat that meat, eats the meat, they are in fact sinning. Because it comes down to what is sin. Sin is not a list of things that you shouldn't do. That's what I thought it was when I was young. Dancing was very high up in the list. But sin is not a list of things that you shouldn't do. Sin is not doing the will of God. Or doing something that you know is not what God wants. So if I eat meat offered to idols, while I think that it might be a bad thing, I'm sinning because I'm choosing to do something that I think that God would not want me to do. So I'm pushed into a place of actually sinning, becoming guilty about that, making more rules for myself and becoming sidelined. Romans 14.23 says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Ooh. Ooh, ouch. 
Did you hear that? Everything that does not come from faith is sin. Simply put, we need to be in a relationship with God where we are doing what we know God wants. It's actually quite complicated, but not complicated at all. We should be doing what we know God wants. Michael Eaton says, if you're walking by the Spirit, if you're doing what you know God wants, you will land up obeying the law. If you're walking by the Spirit intentionally, you'll land up obeying the law incidentally. I put it more simply to my pupils at school. I say, if you're busy doing the do's, you won't have time to do the don'ts. But we have this community in Corinth being bound by people who say, we're so afraid because we don't actually know God that we've got to make this rule and that rule and this rule and that rule, and you've got to stick to that, and if you don't, and the weaker people amongst them, the people, and I'm not talking about people who are not intelligent or not good people, people who have less experience, who haven't grown in their faith at that point, are being trapped by this into a form of godliness that is damaging, both for them and for the people who watch them. Now, what is a strong conscience then? People are confident in their understanding of the word and in the grace and freedom in their relationship with God, confident to interact with the world around them, to exercise godly judgment and wisdom, guided by the Holy Spirit. And I've written here in big letters for myself, it requires integrity and it requires wisdom. How should I change my life to walk in a way that is pleasing to God? Get to know God. Get to know his word. Get to know his nature. When we find something in God's word that seems weird, go and look for the context. Look what God says about that topic right throughout the Bible. If we're in a situation where we just know little bits and pieces that suit the particular philosophy of, of faith that we have and the particular practice of faith that we have, we go to those scriptures and we take them in whatever context we like and we make them work for us. The person who has a strong conscience knows the author, knows the person. And I'll show you some examples from the Bible of what I'm trying to say to you. Jesus himself applies this in the book of Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful for the priest to eat. Sorry, guys. Someone just told me there's a parking attendant putting tickets on people's cars, which is incredibly mean on a Sunday. I'm sorry to do this. But if you are double parked or not sure that your parking is okay, please just move your car quickly. <laughs> Sorry, guys. This is really mean. Thanks. Okay. Well, there goes the congregation. <laughs> it's the law. What's ironic is during the week when we're here in our offices, the people from the car dealership up the road park in all the places where we park now, and we never ever see a parking attendant. They come on Sunday mornings. God bless them and keep them as far away from us as possible. Let's go on with this particular example for those of you who are good parkers. The situation that we're talking about here is recorded in 1 Samuel 21.6 where it says the priest gave the consecrated bread to David 
because there was no bread except the bread of the presence that had been removed before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken from. Let me explain the background. In the temple back in the Old Testament days of King David, in the holy place, not the holy of holies, in the holy place, there was a table with loaves of bread on it that were offered sacrificially to God. There were, I think, 12 loaves of bread, quite large loaves of bread, which referred to the 12 tribes of Israel and God's provision for them. And that bread was holy and sanctified and brought and put on the table and left as an offering to God. But on the Sabbath, a week later, it would be taken away and replaced with new fresh bread and eaten by the priests. It was one of the ways that the, the law provided for the priests to get food was that they ate the showbread. But only the priests ate the showbread. It was a practical arrangement. King David is fleeing from Saul. He and his men are exhausted and hungry. They come to the, 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 the temple or the, the tabernacle in a place called Nob and the priest whose name I've now forgotten. And they say to him, have you got any food? And he says, no, I don't, only the showbread. And David takes the showbread and eats it and gives it to his men, and they are refreshed and they go forward. He understood that the showbread was a symbol that was being offered to God, and once it had been taken out, the reason it was given to the priests only was it was to give the priests that particular privilege because they weren't able to work on their farms and do other things while they were being priests. It wasn't because the bread had acquired some kind of power to knock people over. It was the attitude with which it was taken. And in an emergency, David takes that and uses it. Jesus applies this. His disciples are walking through the fields. They're rubbing some kernels of corn together and eating them. And the Pharisees come and say, you can't do that on the Sabbath because you are working. The law of the Sabbath said you can't plow on the Sabbath, you can't reap on the Sabbath, you can't work on the Sabbath because God had provided a day for people to rest. He says to Israel, you need to rest, your animals need to rest, your guests need to rest, any strangers in your country need to rest. This is a time to be close to God and to rest. There was a purpose for the Sabbath to serve God's wonderful people that he wanted to bless with this time. The Pharisees, with their weak conscience, had turned it into a rule that was extended to the fact that a bunch of people walking through a field who casually rubbed some kernels and ate it were condemned. And Jesus says, that's not right. Jesus knew the Father and he knew the reason for the law being there. Think about that. David, who's described by God as being a man after his own heart, understood the reason for the showbread being there and understood that it would not be harmful or disrespectful in that situation if he used the showbread to save himself and his men from becoming too weak to fight. They knew the reason for the law being there. They knew the reason why the person who had placed the law there had done that because they knew God. Jesus knew the will and purpose of the Father, as did David. He was not afraid to break the legalistic rules of the Pharisees because he knew and understood the will of his Father. It's not arrogance, it's confidence. How do you gain confidence? Quite often by practice. How do you gain confidence in the presence of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of the Lord to make his word open up to us, to have us understand what he wants to say by spending time with him and by spending time in his word? I don't want to lay any legalistic rules on you and say you must read your Bible so many hours a day and you must pray for so many hours a day. That's counterproductive. I'm saying if you want to understand the heart and the teaching and the writings of the God of the universe, the God of creation, of our Lord and Savior, 
then get to know what is said, what is written, and be intimate with the Holy Spirit and allow him to speak into your life and open things up to you. There's gonna be an element of faith that needs to be there. And I use this example often about faith. If you have a child standing on a six-foot-high wall and the father stands below and says to this two-year-old toddler, jump, the child doesn't go, I weigh six kilograms. How much does a toddler weigh? Eight kilograms. Dad is six foot two and weighs 95 kilograms. The wall is six foot high. I'm jumping. I will reach a velocity of so much, E is equal to MC squared. The force that I'll hit my father with will not exceed the inertia of his body and his body weight. I am safe to jump. The child says, I know my dad. My dad's not going to tell me to jump into his arms if he's not able to hold me safely because he loves me and his life is there to protect me. And that's why the child jumps. We need to respond to God's word through knowing God's presence and knowing his word and becoming familiar with him so that, we, you know, he says of himself, he says, my sheep know my name. It refers to the practice of shepherds in those days putting their sheep into a, a, a what do you call it, a, a corral. I'm thinking of the Afrikaans word, a skarm. <laughs> A pen, that'll do. <laughs> Several shepherds would put their sheep into the same pen at night and they'd take turns to protect them from the wolves and the bears and the things. And in the morning, shepherds in the Middle East in those times would go to the, the pen and call out their sheep who would follow the shepherd because they knew his name and they knew his voice and they knew when he called that they would follow them. Jesus said we need to know him so we can follow him. Otherwise, what we got is a book with lots of stuff in it that we can interpret whichever way suits what we want to do, and we can make it mean all sorts of things because we can twist the words and reapply the words. We need to know God to know what God is saying. And that builds what we would call a strong conscience. I'm looking for a particular scripture as I'm saying this. Here we are. Romans chapter 14, verses 15 to 23. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I should be doing the will of God and obeying his expectations from a position of joy. I know this person. I love this person. I want to make this person happy with my presence. And I'm doing these things from a position of love and response constrained by love, not constrained by fear. So, what's our takeaway from the session? I want to encourage you, if you're one of those people who in some aspects of your lives feels nervous all the time that you don't know what God wants and therefore you don't do anything, draw into God, seek advice, seek his word, find out what's going on in God's word and find a place where you can walk in the freedom of his grace. And I'm gonna say something that's probably really controversial. You might make a mistake. 
And God in his grace and his love will confront you with that graciously and in love will convict you and draw you back because you are in your heart saying, God, I want to do your will. He says if we pray to him and we ask for good things, he won't give us bad things. But if you just sit out of fear, you can't steer a boat that's not going forward. It's got to have some momentum forward to be steered. So seek God's face, seek his word, seek an understanding of his word and apply that. And rejoice in the fact that you have a heavenly father that says to you that you have a job to do, that you have lives to change. And don't be constrained by a weak conscience that says sit in your corner and be holy and don't make any mistakes. Somebody else will take care of what the world needs. I just this year have had such a stirring in my spirit as I look out at you. You're an army, you're a force, you're a raiding party, you're a mission. You people who know Jesus, you people who have the Spirit of God living inside you, and there's a world out there that is bust. I mean, good. I try to think recently of one world leader or politician that I'm going, yeah, go. And I'm thinking, I'm just going, oh dear, what's going on? Wars, rumors of wars, famines, they're happening. And we sitting here this morning, blessed of God with the gospel of Jesus Christ in our hearts and the truth of that being lived out in our lives, don't be cornered by whether you should eat the meat of idols or dance. Seek the power of God and the Holy Spirit to walk and do that with integrity and diligence and say, my heavenly Father, I want to serve you. If I'm stepping out of line by your grace, will you lead me on the paths of righteousness? Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever, amen. Lead me in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And we've got the people in Corinth in their different factions, this lot saying we are holy by doing this, and this lot saying we are holy by doing this, and they're damaging one another. And what God wants doesn't really appear to be coming into the picture that much. Until Paul comes along and says, Oi, this is about walking and living in joy of the Holy Spirit, taking God's word and applying it by the power of his Holy Spirit. If you, <clears throat> sorry, if you somebody who believes that you are strong in your conscience and you have the freedom to walk in the grace of God and you would have eaten the meat from idols and not felt anything at all, be prepared to give that up in a heartbeat if it's going to make someone stumble. What we had here were people who were saying, I have that freedom. That was good. Now they're saying, I don't care what my freedom does to the person who doesn't understand. I'm going to walk in my freedom. I'm going to have my steak. Best steak we get is from that idol's shop. I'm going to get my steak. I have the freedom. If we have the confidence of walking in God's power, our heart should be constrained towards love. We're going to get in a couple of years' time to 1 Corinthians 13, <laughs> which coincidentally follows 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12 lists a whole bunch of good things we can do in the power of the Holy Spirit. Prophesy, heal, speak in tongues, discern spirits. 
And then 1 Corinthians 13, in the first couple of verses, takes all those things, says, if I can do that, if I can do that, if I can do that, and I do not have love. If why I'm doing it is not out of concern for what God wants, I am nothing. So don't boast in your freedom. Boast in the God that gave you that freedom. And Paul says this, if me eating the meat from the idols is gonna cause my brother or sister to stumble, I will give up eating meat completely. Oh, that's scary. <laughs> but he says, I will give that up completely. Why? Because I'm here to serve my God, not to serve a set of regulations. That's all I've got this morning, guys. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the freedom that was bought for us by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that, and we honor you, and we worship you, and we want so much, Lord, to do what is right by you. We want to serve you in a way that is blameless and in a way that brings joy to your heart. Would you help us to do that? Would you save us from arrogance? Would you save us from timidity? Would you, by your precious Holy Spirit, lead us through your word and your presence to know you more and more? And as we know you, we respond to you with love and constrained by love, we do your purposes and your will in our lives. Make us strong in you, not in ourselves not in our intellect or our experience or our preferences, but in who you are. Amen.